0: Good morning, church. Our scripture passage today comes from 1 John two, eighteen through 27. Please follow along with me as I read. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain, that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar, but he who denies that Jesus is a Christ? This is the Antichrist, the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you.
1: Let's pray, Father, O Sovereign One who sits above all, <laughs> the Omniscient One, the Omnipotent One. Lord, we marvel, knowing who you are, that we could sing, We Believe, because it means that you've entered time and space. In your grace, you have revealed yourself to us, and you have allowed us. To know you, who are we, (laughs) that you, the creator of the universe, would stoop down and allow us to have fellowship with you via the Son and in the power of the Spirit. Father, John is going to elaborate on this today as we look at this text. It's not an easy one, and so Father, I ask that you would guide us as we go to it. Lord, thank you that your word does not come back void. And so, Father, we ask this morning that our hearts would be open to what you have. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, turn to 1 John, chapter 2. We've been moving through this epistle, this glorious letter written by the Apostle John. As you do, last month, the the U.S. was stunned. At least many of us were, when on October. August the 3rd, a 22-year-old Navy sailor was arrested on espionage charges that were brought at the naval base in San Diego. The special agent in charge, Bryce Miller, NCIS officer of special projects, states, this petty officer, and then he gave the name, who as a service member was entrusted with our nation's secrets is accused of selling out his country betraying his oath to the Navy by willingly providing sensitive information to a Chinese intelligence officer for his own financial gain. He then goes on to state, the NCIS will continue to leverage its unique law enforcement and counterintelligence authorities to aggressively root out those who put our nation's war fighters at risk the Apostle John is taking a similar modus operandi, or an, a, a, a similar venue here in this passage. He displays the Apostle commitment to identifying, disrupting, and dismantling, I would argue, all efforts of the enemy. <laughs> in 1 John 2, John aggressively exposes a group of individuals who claim to be in the camp, but they are not. And their danger lies in that they have denied Christ and those implications, which he's going to elaborate on, but also they're undermining the faith of the believers. It's serious. They're leading them astray. And so he writes, and you're going to see, we're going to toggle back and forth between those, the opponents, the dark side and those those who don't belong versus those who do belong and so notice how he begins this section it's how he does in all of these sections in john's in this epistle he says and now he says children he loves them deeply otherwise why would he even be writing he's concerned about their spiritual well-being as he writes and so he says children And there's another reason for the urgency, and it's repeated twice in this verse, and he says, it is the last hour. That phrase, anyone who's been studying a little bit of biblical theology would need to sit up and take heart or nourishment. This is a significant phrase. Jesus referred to the last hour, the end times, back in Mark 13, Matthew 24, or the parallel text in Luke 21. We're in the last hour, and the, the New Testament writers understood this, because since the death, resurrection of Jesus, history has been preparing now for the end, when Jesus will come, or via the rapture, tribulation, and then establish his kingdom. This is it. It's all ready. We're in the last hour, and, and you say, well, John said that. That was, that was back in the late... 80s, early 80s. This is a long time ago. It still hasn't come. But you just, we must remember, right? What does 2 Peter 3 state? With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. God created time. He's in time. He's out of time. And he sees the big picture. So I would argue, yes, our writers know. In fact, it's, my parents, when I was a kid, they used to say, time just moves by so quickly. And I'm thinking, no, it doesn't. slow. Now, at the age of 30, well, okay, a little older, (laughs) I think, my, where is the time going? It goes so fast. Now I know what they were saying. Imagine the Lord. And so I would argue John, along with the rest of the New Testament writers, they're not mistaken. This is the last hour. The time is near. Of course, there's a couple serious, significant implications. One is we are in the last days. When you think about it, Christianity is an apocalyptic religion. We are looking to the end. We know it's coming. It's imminent when Christ will return. That's glorious. Second, it also tells us we need. it's important what we believe. <laughs> We're living in... The, the red lights are going off. This is it. The last hour is upon us. And that leads us to the third, and we'll get to that further as we talk about knowing what you believe. It's, it's why it's important. God's not playing games. <laughs> if he said the first time he'd come, he'd be born in Bethlehem, Micah five, and indeed he was. The Lord the text says he's coming back. And John understood this. He goes, "We're in it. This is it. And this leads us to the third, and that is that we're going to see with the last hour there are circumstances that occur and John's noting them. Notice he says, you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, and many many Antichrists have already appeared. The term Antichrist occurs only a few times in the New Testament, all in John's writings, believe it or not. However, it's he, the Antichrist, is referred to other titles. And let me, there's really three ways to look at Antichrist in the New Testament. The first is we, we could be referring to the Antichrist, that is, a person who will head up the final world rebellion against Christ. Daniel 7, a key text to all of this, as well as Revelation 13, refers to him as the beast. He it's that horrific individual who will embody the evil of all the previous empires as he fights against God and his people. Second Thessalonians 2 calls him the man of sin or the man of lawlessness. And so the Antichrist can refer to a person as seen here. It can also refer to the spirit of the Antichrist. We see this in later in chapter 4 of 1 John where he's, in fact, look at 1 John 4, 3. Don't take my word for it. Look at 1 John 4, verse 3. He says, but every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the antichrist. It's a spirit that is ultimately energized by Satan. It's one that seems to, or wants to strip God of who he is. The phrase is appropriate. It's against Christ, or instead of Christ. So we have a person, we've got a spirit, or as John refers to here in our text, we can have little antichrist. These are the the false teachers, the false prophets who embody the spirit of the antichrist, and they're here now. The text even says that. Now there are many antichrists. This shouldn't surprise us Jesus stated in Matthew 24, For false Christ, false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. That's Jesus speaking, stating that in Matthew 24. So the term could refer to an individual, or it can refer to a group of individuals, or it can refer to the Spirit. But all of that is something that denies who Christ is, denies his sonship, etc. And John says, we know we're in the last hour because there's Antichrist. That just demonstrates what Christ warned us about, and here we are. Now, we look at this, and he says here, there's some practical implications, isn't there, in light of what John is writing I think, one, we should not, never lose sight of the urgency and the imminence of the Lord's return. John understands that. I, and I, Do we live as if we're in the last hour? <laughs> That's what's driving John. I was rather surprised in a, a recent Pew Research study just last year. They found that four in ten U.S. adults believe humanity is living in the end times. I was a little surprised it was that high, 4 out of 10. For Protestants, it's 63%. Uh, That's a broad spectrum there, but 63%. There are many. In fact, I was looking at a text thread this week, uh, or one of these threads online. It says, how would you respond to the question, what would you do if you knew this was your last day? Now... uh, uh, Sarah wrote, I would resign from my job. <laughs> I love it. Uh, go, you go party, right? Priya says I want to have the best cheesecake available. Calories don't matter. Raphael said I'd get multiple life insurances and pay off the premiums. Brian said I'd throw all my dirty dishes in the dumpster. It'd be nice to die with a clean sink. <laughs> We're living in the last hour? Do we live as if that's the case? The Lord may tarry for another 24 hours. He may tarry for another 2,000 years. But in the grand scheme of things, this is it. At any moment, the Lord can return. Second implication as I look at this and what's driving John as he writes is we should not be surprised by the depravity in the world. I'm shocked that they are Believers who are shocked. <laughs> uh, really? Uh, we are told time and time in the New Testament this world is going to continue to unravel. If anything, the very state of the church and the world should serve as, I think, an amazing confirmation of God's word. I mean, think about Paul's words in 2 Timothy 3. Here he is about to croak, he's passing the baton to Timothy. And he says in chapter 3, verse 1, But understand this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. You're in the last days. For people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy. Sound familiar? Unloving, irreconcilable, slanders, without self-control, treacherous, reckless, conceited. It's a laundry list. And it sounds very familiar. They will remain, it says they will maintain the outward appearance of religion will will have repudiated its power. That's what John's talking about. They claim they're one of us, but they never were. And we'll get to that in a minute. But I love what Paul says then later in verse 8. He's writing to Timothy. He's writing ultimately to believers. In the midst of these last days, listen to what he says. Finally, the crown of righteousness is reserved for me. The Lord, the righteous judge, will award it to me in that day and not to me only, but to all who have set their affection on his appearing. When's the last time you've talked about the Lord returning? When's the last time you said, hey, we're in the last hour? Another implication and I would argue, yes, there's a lot of, Ugh, this is awful, isn't it? But it's a glorious time for the church. When 9-11 occurred, the first weekend after the attack, religious attendance went up 6%. And studies showed that after eight months, religious influence, now it's broad, but a religious influence in American life went from 37 to 78% just eight months later after 9 11 We have an opportunity as the church to provide hope. Well, the Lord pointed the people to Christ, right? Through hope, peace, comfort. Because we know the end is near and we know who's in charge. Hmm. I'm amazed at believers who are not only shocked but scared. Why? We know the end of the story. (laughs) This is it. We are waiting. Christ came the first time. It was glorious. And so we can sing, we wish you a Merry Christmas. All right? and a whole lot of other wonderful things because he died on a cross for our sins. But there's a day coming when he will reign and the crud of this world will be dealt with. And so we as a church have an incredible opportunity. And John sees this in, in this. He says, children, it is the last hour. And we know that. But in this process of warning them about this last hour, Notice what he says about these individuals who are lurking. He says in verse 19, they went out from us. They did not really belong to us, because if they had belonged to us, they would have remained. The us here is referring to the fellowship of believers, the big church, I would argue. In other words, we're not talking about some individuals who've left the denomination or they've changed churches. No, 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 no. We're talking about a group of individuals that have a veneer that looks really good on the outside, but underneath it's rotted. 2 Timothy 2, everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from evil. And this really is the third test here that John is gonna highlight, and he will come back to this. We've seen, how do you know you're really a follower of Jesus? Well, how are you doing in the area of obedience? How are you doing the airing of loving one another? And here's the third area, and that's perseverance, steadfastness. These false teachers were not kicked out of the church. They didn't have their membership revoked. They willfully did not belong. And there, by the way, is a great danger. It's very subtle. They appeared to be a part of the church. Did you catch that? they really didn't belong john says even though they went with us they didn't really belong satan is always good at counterfeiting it's subtle words have been redefined meanings altered and confusion intentionally sown reminds me of the looney tunes uh, i love ralph wolf and sam sheepdog you remember those characters they were great and 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 Ralph the wolf uh, would dress up as a a sheep and try to infiltrate the flock so that he could take them down. But thankfully, Sam the sheepdog was very wise and he always knew what Ralph was doing. Sadly, as noted here by John, there may be members of a local church. They may even join, but they're not in the book of life. They're the false prophets. They're the antichrist. Why, because they've redefined their Christology, who Christ is, what Christ has accomplished. And in 1 John 4, it says they have the spirit of error. This is significant. It's significant, it's number one, John is not concerned, note this, he's not concerned about the size of the church, the color of the pews, its location, He's concerned about the purity of the church, and that should be our concern. As we'll see in the next text here, perseverance is directly linked with those that are abiding in Christ. The word abide is mentioned six times in these verses, five times for those that belong, and only once in relationship to those who don't belong, and it says they do not abide. So it's the negative side. Philippians 1, I am sure this very thing, that the one who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. We mustn't forget this perseverance is possible because Jesus is working in and through via the Holy Spirit in a person's life. That's vital here in understanding this. And these individuals, they don't belong. They're not part of the fellowship. Remember the text we looked at in chapter 1? In fact, turn back to chapter one. This is so vital here. It set the scene for this. In verse three of chapter one, what have we seen? What have we heard announced to you so that you may have fellowship with us? Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. To abide in Christ and be part of that fellowship. And this group is not part of the fellowship. I mentioned it several times. The the whole parable, the vine and the branches. Jesus is the vine and we are the branches, Right? They're not part of the vine. They're separated. Now, he toggles back to the believers. So he's talked about the opponents of the church. And he says in verse 20, Nevertheless, you, unlike those who don't belong, have an anointing. And I believe the reference here is anointing of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 1, but it is God who establishes us together with you in Christ, who has anointed us, who has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a down payment. His bank does not go belly up. He's invested much. If you've made a profession in Jesus Christ, you've come to an understanding, I am a sinner, Christ is the means of my salvation, and you turn to him as your Savior, the Holy Spirit is given as a down payment. It's, you are sealed, as the text says. And that is that anointing that is referred to here in verse 20. Anointing in the New Testament, and even in the Old was a, an act of means of setting something aside for service. In the ca- case of theology, for God, being set aside as for a holy purpose. Notice who does the anointing. It's passive. It's God who does the anointing. It's, it's not a repeated act. It happened at the point of your salvation. And we we'll can see in verse 27... The anointing is directly linked with the abiding, which only further strengthens that. So if Jesus is the vine and we are the branches, we've been anointed. We're in the fellowship with the Lord, with the Father, unlike the opponents. That's vital, and we're gonna see this here. John's gonna spell this out in great terms. And notice, in fact, he says, I mean, John is such a great Texan here. He says, now you all know Verse, the latter part of 20, right? You all know, he's confident in this. The the, the knowledge they have because they've been anointed by the Spirit is something, it's not for the elite, it's for anyone who's made a profession in Christ. Later on, we're going to see that the opponents, these antichrists, are going to claim they have a corner on truth. They understand something you all don't because we're a little more spiritual, Mm mm-hmm. John will get to that, that later, but he's setting this up here. Now, you see this. And he says, you all know this, that I have not, in verse 21, I have not written to you that you do not know the truth, but you do know it. The, the truth is embodied in Christ. Jesus stated, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In Ephesians 4, indeed, you heard about him and were taught in him just as the truth is is in Jesus. So if you've made a profession in Christ, you know the truth, and the Spirit has been identified as that which is true, the Spirit of truth, John 14, 15, and John 16. One commentator, F.F. Bruce, writes, "...believers have a built-in spiritual instinct which enables them to detect and refuse whatever is basically incompatible with that truth." No matter how spe- uh, sp- uh, special or eloquent it may be set out before them. I think there's a lot of truth to that. Find me a man or a woman who's in the Word of God, walking in the spirit. They may not have had all those theological courses that you get at, at uh, cemetery, seminary, right? They, they may not have had all that. But there's a radar. And they know, mm, no, something isn't right here. I, you know, recently I had someone write to me, sent an email to me and said, you know, I've been reading this book. This doesn't seem right, but I can't put my finger on it. <laughs> that's knowing that's the truth. You've been guided. The Holy Spirit is moving. Unlike the, the opponents who, in verse 22, are called liars. They deny that Jesus, John states, is the Christ. John is not sparing any punches here. I hope you're catching this. It's like the NCIS or NCSI, I don't know, All right. he He's not sparing any punches here. He's, this is it. It's interesting, John's disciple, one of his protégés, was called Polycarp. He was a bishop later of Smyrna, In he died about 155 A.D., But listen to what Polycarp says. This is interesting because it gives you an idea of what John is seeing coming down the pike as well as what the church is facing at that time. Polycarp states, everyone who does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that's big for John, it's important because we talked about this, if Christ isn't fully man, we got a serious problem. The atonement, and the list goes on. And Polycarp says, That person who denies it is the Antichrist. Polycarp goes on to write, and whoever does not confess the testimony of the cross is of the devil, and whoever perverts the oracles of the Lord to his own lust and says that there is neither resurrection nor judgment, he is Satan's firstborn. It's not true, and if it's not true, it's a lie. And if it's a lie, it's of Satan. I mean, it's it's very clear what John is trying to to, to do for us is to understand listen you either abide in Christ you don't abide in Christ either you know the truth or you don't know the truth there's no middle ground here we're not playing games when you deny Christ's humanity or his deity and the work of the Holy Spirit through Jesus then the text is clear you're an antichrist because you you're against Christ. Look at verse 22. The one who's the Antichrist is the person who denies the Father and the Son. My advisor, I've mentioned this before at Aberdeen years ago, she had no problem saying Jesus historically existed. The, the data is too strong. She had no problem telling you what you read in the, in the Bible is what they wrote in the first century because the textual criticism, the, the manuscripts, all the evidence, it's too strong. But what she would argue is but John and all the other writers had no idea what they're talking about, and Jesus is not God. The demons even believed Jesus it came in the flesh, and they trembled. Careful. True confession involves a personal faith in Christ, it is who he is and what he has done. It's not a mere intellectual, theological statement you recite. It's a personal witness of what is transformed in the heart. This group over here had no problem saying God was a wonderful example. I mean, Jesus, he was a good man, a wonderful teacher, a miracle worker. But the, that's not the question. The question ultimately is is he the Christ? Is he the Son of God who came in the flesh and took on our sin? I mean, all of those things, by the way, John is, is identified even in this short section. He'll call Jesus Christ, he'll call him the Son of God, and he'll call him, a reference, indirectly, the Holy One. John is dogmatic in a world that has become more and more tolerant, unless you disagree with him. Um, he gives no, no disqualifying statements. This is how it is. Why? Well, one is he knows it's the last hour. Two, he's concerned about the church and what his opponents are doing. But let me give you a couple other reasons to the danger of denying Christ. First of all, John knows the facts. John was there. He witnessed Jesus firsthand. <laughs> John was there when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. John was there when Jesus gave that wonderful sermon on the mountain. Even when he lovingly reprimanded him, John was there. He was there when Jesus declared it's finished, and John ran into the empty tomb. He was there. He saw the resurrected Lord, and he saw him ascend. And when John hears what this side is saying, you better believe he's very concerned. John knows this Christ. It's no wonder he writes it for the purpose of his gospel as well as 1 John. I'm writing these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Depending on how you take the Greek, it could be that you go on believing. <laughs> Not only you believe, but you keep on believing that Jesus is the Christ. Why? We're in the last hour. It's dangerous. And to deny Christ, he also knows the dangers that come are very subtle. Similar to NCIS, the he knows, John knows, the dangers that lurk. The false teachers, by di- denying the very nature of the person of the Lord Jesus, discredit the gospel by, and deny, again, the person and work of Christ. Paul, in Acts 20, said of the false teachers, they are savage wolves. Ralph, the wolf, doesn't look too vicious, Paul understands it far worse than that. He calls them pack hunters who stalk their prey by sending out a single wolf to increase the element of stealth and surprise. John knows. He's not done, though. Look at the warnings that come here by the person who denies the son also denies the father. Did you catch that there on the latter part of verse 22? John, Jesus stated in John chapter, well, John 1 18 says, the knowledge of the Father is inseparable for the Son. Jesus states, I and the Father, one, you know me, you know the Father. One of the greatest comforts that comes as a believer in Christ is to know the love the Father has for us, doesn't it? Can you imagine denying that? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. To deny that is to strip him of this. Or Matthew 6, the Father knows our every need. And yet these opponents, what they are doing, John sees, not only denying Christ, but you have a direct link in that you're denying the Father, because they're one. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great English preacher, well, Welsh actually, but pastors in London states, Where is my joy to come from? How can I withstand the forces that are set against me? The very basis of John's epistle is gone, and hence the strong language. If we strip this away, we're in trouble. And this is what Martin Lloyd-Jones is stating, and he's right. And I would argue it's even bigger than that. You deny the Son, you deny the Father, you also dismantle the Trinity, the three-in-one. To deny the Son is to deny the Father, and to deny the Father the Son is to deny the Holy Spirit. So that we're left to ourselves with human wisdom and understanding and philosophy and our own vain efforts, endeavors to please God. That's a bummer. <laughs> that is not a good day. Thank the Lord. We have not only what Christ has accomplished, not only that the Father loved us and sent his Son, but we have the Holy Spirit who comes alongside, and we're going to see the role of the Spirit here as John continues. And so he says, these are the opponents, but this is who you are, and it's glorious. And he comes back to this in verses 24 through 26. As for you, so you don't deny Christ, you've embraced him. As for you, what have you heard from the beginning must remain in you Now he's gonna give us several truths here that if you're taking notes, if you're online, you're taking notes, this is so key. First is the importance of the essentials of the faith. Notice what he states you you've heard this from the beginning. We've given this to you, which tells us what. Number one, it was truthful. John says the teachings that we gave you, unlike those opponents, it's truthful, it's accurate. This wasn't based on a biased tradition. We didn't embellish the story to make Jesus look good. It's not a phone game in which, oops, it was passed down. By the time it got to you, it was corrupted. No, the word, via the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, is what helps us recognize this is truthful. It's not a counterfeit. Secondly, it's authoritative. It governs. It should be governing our lives. There's there's no missing parts. There's there's no need to add it or embellish or amend. And the third, which is vital in the day in which we live, it's knowable. It can be ascertained. There's no need for additional tools, supernatural activity, or additional experiences. It's here. Now, there's a place for commentaries. There's a place for other tools. But the first and foremost is to study the text. Even my Greek students who were having to write sermons, I said, you will spend the first time, just the first part of your study. I I don't want you looking at any commentary. Just look at the text. Study the text. Observe. It's the first vital part of Bible study. You don't have to know Greek. Just observe. What does the text say? Satan is the father of lies. He has no ultimate authority, and he loves confusion. Our Lord, on the other hand, does not lie. His word is authoritative, and he brings clarity to the confusion in the world. And so number one, John says, hey, you've known from the beginning these things. You know they're true, versus what they're saying is not true. Secondly, he goes on to state, if what you've heard from the beginning remains in you, you will also remain in the Son and in the Father. There's the joy of fellowship that comes, knowing this abiding it's what they don't have. And again, five times in these next several verses, he's gonna say, you abide in Christ or you remain in him. Years ago, I had an opportunity to fly first class. And you, you, when you fly first class, you, you get access to the club room. Ooh, ooh that was pretty nifty. i was like, wow, this is great. You know, Do I pay for this? No, you don't have to pay. Oh, this is nice. You get perks, you get benefits that you wouldn't get if you weren't flying accordingly. It's awesome. The perks here is you could have fellowship with the Savior. <laughs> you know Christ is your Lord. You have all these benefits that come. It isn't just abiding in God that we have this personal relationship with him. Notice what verse 24 says. It's God remaining in us and the Father. Look at verse 27. He says as well here, they reside in us. It's it goes back to again chapter 1 verse 3 this fellowship the intimacy that comes with the father and the son The great theologian Anne Shirley of Anne Green Gables talks about this and I was trying to think how do you describe the abiding with the Lord and I thought yeah Anne Green Gables has got it Anne Shirley says it's kindred spirit Because you think about it, it's sharing life's blessings and challenges. You laugh together, you cry together. That friendship provides a source of encouragement, exhortation, you love one another. They have your back, you're when you support. And in many ways, that's this abiding, it's the intimacy that comes as you continue to grow. And the great news is, as you continue to abide in Christ and grow in him, you become more like him. Hmm. All the more with the Lord. He's the source of true joy, peace, hope, and love. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, there's, got a, there's a huge void here. The source of encouragement, strength, and grace. You've got communion. You've got purpose as you are conformed to His image. I love the old hymn, Under His Wings, Cushing, the author of over 300 hymns, Pins these words. Listen to what he states. Under his wings, I'm safely abiding. Though the night deepens and tempests are wild, the last hour, still I can trust him. I know he will keep me. He's redeemed me, and I am his child. Under his wings, what a refuge in sorrow, how the heart yearning turns to his rest. Often when earth has no balm for my healing, I found comfort and I am blessed. Under his wings, oh, what precious enjoyment! There will I hide till life's trials are o'er. Sheltered, protected, no evil can harm me. Resting in Jesus, I'm safe evermore. And the last line of the refrain: Under his wings, my soul shall abide, safely abide forever. (laughs) That's the one having fellowship. Under his wings. And in the turmoil which John is writing and these opponents, John says, don't forget who you are in Christ and what he's accomplished. Don't let these Yehus shipwreck you. What an incredible, undeserving, and glorious opportunity to abide with our Savior now and for all eternity. And that's another benefit that he gives in verse 25. This is the promise that he himself made to us. Don't you love it? It's anchored in Christ and all that he's done. It's eternal life. (laughs) One thing that you read in John's gospel as well as 1 John, eternal life isn't just fire insurance kind of a thing for the future. No, 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 it's more glorious than that. (laughs) This opportunity to abide in the presence of the Lord But for John, there is an element that the eternal life is also here and now. There's the joys that come with all these benefits of knowing this is our one, the promise of life that awaits as well as the joy of it, living it full here. I think that's why Paul says, for me to live is Christ, (laughs) and to die, oh, it's gain. I'm here for Christ. I'm here to exalt him. Our theme for November the 19th, the target date for our new building is all glory be to Christ. And I love it. That's what we're here for, is it not? To exalt Christ, but my, what a day it'll be. And we can rejoice that this is the last hour. (laughs) We're getting closer and closer. And sadly, not only do those who not belong miss out on salvation in the future, they miss the fellowship with the Godhead, the role of the Spirit, And that leads us to the last, which is found in verse 27, and that's the the value of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. We've talked about this anointing that comes, this sealing that is being set apart. But there's more than that. Notice what he says in verse 27. Now as for you, the anointing that you receive from him resides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. His anointing teaches you about all things. It's true, and it's not a lie, just as it taught you you reside in Him. The first thing we see is the indwelling role of the Holy Spirit. What a glorious thing for the New Testament saint, because in the Old Testament it wasn't permanent. For the New Testament saints, it is permanent. 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is within you, whom you have from God and you are not your own? It's a safeguard, it's one that, that, that dwells within us. And again, we've talked about the truth that comes. Secondly, it's the, we see you're the teaching role of the Spirit. John 16 talked about this, and I'm giving you the Holy Spirit who will guide you in these things. Notice it, and Notice what John says here, you about all things. It's comprehensive. I always get a little uneasy when I hear a preacher or a teacher have a hobby horse theologically, and that's all they ever talk about. That makes me nervous, to be quite honest. Matthew 4.4, 4, every word that proceeds out of the mouth must be, and John, or Paul states in Acts 20, when I preached, I preached the entire counsel of God. This is significant. Now, there's a few caveats here. What is the text not saying? It doesn't mean a Christian is omniscient. We don't know all things. I must keep this in the context of what he's talking about. Secondly, it's not exhaustive in the sense we're called to grow in knowledge and in grace. It's also not stating that the Holy Spirit's all that we need. The Word of God is unnecessary because John's already talked about the importance of apostolic teaching. It's not a subjective thing. It's objective, rooted in the Word of God, which the Holy Spirit uses in our lives and so thus no one has a direct revelation. That's what John is not saying. So what is John saying then when he says you'll know all things through the Spirit? I think that is that the Holy Spirit provides the Christian spiritual understanding, something that the natural man or woman will never know. 1 Corinthians Two, the unbeliever does not receive the things of the Spirit. They are foolishness, and they cannot understand them. Going back, you know, you you share Christ with an unbeliever, and they look at you as if you're, you know, you're talking, I don't know, Greek or something. They they don't understand. They're blinded to the truth. They don't understand the things of the truth. And so the Holy Spirit dwells us, it, it teaches us, and there's one other, and that is assurance. Hmm. Romans 8 states, For all who are led by the Spirit of God, watch this, are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery, leading again to fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are God's children. Wow. If you know Christ as your Savior, you've got the indwelling of the Spirit, who goes before you, teaching and guiding through his word. And in so doing, he also assures you, according to Paul's words in Romans 8, you belong to him. They don't. These do. Isn't that awesome? (laughs) That we can call the father Abba. Jesus, in the upper room, when he says, I'm... I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit to you. Jesus did not have the Father send us the Spirit to foster skepticism and doubt. <laughs> he did not have the Spirit indwell our hearts so that we can wander aimlessly and struggle in our spiritual identity. Jesus stated in the upper room that he had the Father send the Spirit in order to provide us with another advocate. What comfort. What assurance. And so these over here who do not belong miss out on all the glorious things for those who've claimed Christ as their Savior. And we rejoice, especially since it is the last hour. Father, thank you for your word. In this text this morning, we're reminded once again Via the Apostle Paul and the power of the Spirit are standing before you. We can call you Father. We have an advocate that dwells within us, the Holy Spirit, if we know Christ as our Savior. And we have Christ as our advocate at your very throne room at this moment, interceding on our behalf. Why would we ever not belong? (laughs) We bask in abiding. Lord, it's a reminder, though, too, in the midst of the hour in which we live, to be very vigilant, to understand the urgency in which we live, to guard the church, and, Lord, to be heralds of light of hope and peace and grace that comes from your word. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.